We're reading just the opening portion of this lengthy and precious chapter. Obviously one I trust that is familiar to us as a congregation. The Apostle says, beginning verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that He was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all He was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Well, amen, we'll end our reading, and we trust again the Lord to add His blessing to the public reading of His Word. Let's do bow our heads and our hearts again together. Heavenly Father, remind us again of the grace that is offered and given to Your people in this house. Lord, we come today pursuing what is called a means of grace. Lord, there's no magic, there's no merit in us sitting in a seat in this particular room for a couple of times on the Lord's day. But yet it is the means whereby You have ordained that Your Word might be known, that Christ might be preached, that grace might be received. Lord, we give testimony to that grace. We pray today that You will give us something more of Jesus, something more of grace as we consider this Word that we've read together. And we pray it all in Jesus' worthy and precious name. Amen. Well, we've concluded our little survey of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. But I want to return today to what is obviously one of the most significant passages that deals with those appearances of the risen Lord. I don't deal, come to it to deal with the resurrection itself, but just as a means in some ways of introducing what I hope for us to begin pursuing, Lord willing, this fall in our morning services. I've been thinking and praying about what to preach beginning this fall for some time. On the drive home from camp, I think I was in the Shenandoah Valley, a little on the north side of the valley, and I just was smitten with the thought, you know, I've, I've preached from the book a lot, but I've never really just preached through Romans. And I kind of pushed it aside because I'd been leaning a little bit toward getting back into the Old Testament. In that Lord's Day, I was 
providentially eating over the coals. Brother Daniel just happened to say to me, Brother, have you ever thought about preaching through Romans? Okay. And then about a week later, I got an email, uh, one of the blogs that I get, which is not a lot. And uh, lo and behold, I saw that an acquaintance of mine has just published a commentary on the book of Romans. It's like, okay, Lord, <laughs> the Old Testament, we'll get back there. Uh, and I haven't bought my, well, be a stretch to say he's a friend. An acquaintance is more accurate. I haven't bought that commentary yet. I think I have 27 commentaries on Romans. Um, I mean, I'm glad I have them all, and I probably will eventually buy this one too. But um, I don't intend to do a verse-by-verse careful exposition that takes us eight years or anything like that. I do want to cover the book and the main arguments, and I'll even take the liberty of well, we might preach through a chapter on one Sunday and a phrase uh, for another Sunday. I, I don't know how all of those particulars will play out. But if we consider the book of Romans and think of it as the gospel in its fullest and most explicit form and expression, well, what we've read today, particularly as we come uh, to these opening three verses, we find here what we might say the gospel in its most efficient and briefest statement. Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. And then there's just a, a, a firing of a couple bullet points. We'll talk about how to enumerate those points as we go along. But he just simply states what the good news is. Of course, 1 Corinthians 15 is the classic chapter with regard to the doctrine of the resurrection. Not only the historic fact of the resurrection of Jesus that Paul enumerates and proves again, as it were, in these opening verses. But what it means, and the fact that our resurrection, and the fact really that the whole of the Gospel is tied up in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, We've said often it's one of the most doctrinally significant and important chapters in all the Bible. If you take 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 5, I mean, these two chapters that speak to us so directly, so carefully about the believer's union with Jesus Christ. About the fact of the union we previously had with the first man, a union that resulted in sin and condemnation and death. A union with the second man that results in righteousness and justification and life. Well, I say what Paul, Lord willing, we will find, gives so carefully and logically and explicitly in the book of Romans. He gives us very carefully in just a few phrases here in 1 Corinthians 15. So I want to present to you today, and I'm looking at our time um, we had one lengthy sermon already from Paul, and I can be very familiar and read those, and they're quite a blessing. But I want to give you some simple thoughts and statements today from the passage that we've read. And the first one is this, very simply, the preaching of the Gospel. Look with me again at verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, 
How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The preaching of the Gospel. Paul says here, I delivered something to you. It was something, and we have that familiar phrase in our statement of the ordinance of the Lord's table, the words of institution, I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received. Well, here's a message. Here's truth that Paul has received. And he says here, verse 3, notice that phrase, I delivered unto you first of all. Paul here is not saying the first thing that I've said to you, whether being there or even the first thing in this epistle. I mean, we're at chapter 15 of a pretty lengthy epistle. The phrase here isn't really a temporal phrase, first of all. It's it's a foundational phrase. It's as if Paul were saying here, let me say this again. I have nothing new to say. This is the bedrock of the whole thing. Now, there were different pieces of problems in Corinth. You look at that. We studied this epistle not very many years ago. Again, though my chronometer is broken. At least, no, it wasn't in the 90s. Um, but there were several things, and we saw that little phrase in the Greek. It's actually the words peri-day. It's translated in our English Bibles, usually now concerning... There were things, obviously, the Corinthians had written to Paul about. They said, Paul, what about this? We've got this situation. What about that? Well, Paul doesn't immediately start answering those questions. There were some problems in Corinth that needed to be addressed before he answered the questions they had in their letter. But what he say is even introducing his treatment of those particular problems. He said, I determined not to know anything among you Accept or save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Every other thing, every other problem, every other practical application or practical question that you have with regard to your life in the church and what's transpired in your lives and in the lives of these new converts, it's all going to flow out from the Gospel. It's not like they're in addition to the Gospel. It's not like they're more important than the Gospel. It's not like there's an answer to these particular questions and problems that comes from some other source than the Gospel. The Gospel's everything. I mean, without it, what are we doing? What is the church even about? What is the message that we have? And This was brought home to me in my early days, not even really my early days in the ministry, coming into the ministry. I don't know if it was me. I feel like in some ways it was a common impression. The Gospel, you know, it's kind of that thing we do. We hear the Romans road, not against the Romans road, and we make our decision, and then we plug into church, and then we got to deal with all these other things. And how much of church resolved down to a list of principles about how to deal with the other stuff. When the Gospel is the way to deal with the other stuff. The Gospel isn't something that we get when we first hear about Jesus. We, we ask Him to save us and then we put it in a box and it's forever gone. 
It's something we daily apply. It's something we constantly strive to understand and appreciate more. And it was the substance of what Paul preached constantly. And I say when we think in this first thought here about the preaching of the Gospel, that speaks to us of Paul's methodology. What was he doing? What was his purpose? He was preaching Christ. Now this may come as a surprise to you. I hope perhaps not. But I tell you as a minister, a minister committed to truth, committed to Scriptures, committed to the Reformed faith, the Westminster Standards, all of those things, the very heart of all of that, you could say, is preaching Christ. The person and work of Christ. But it's easy. It's tempting. It's subtle to preach something else. And when you come to focus, and again, then the devil and maybe the flesh comes along. You've already preached that. They've heard. They know. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is going to be the answer to all even of the practical stuff that comes further down the line. It's the Gospel. The Gospel only. If I could borrow a portion of a phrase from our political speak of the last few decades, it's the Gospel, stupid. Constantly, Paul is preaching the Gospel. That's his methodology. Secondly, I would put before you today as we see this statement, the substance of the Gospel. It says here, I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul says here, that's his culmination as it were, to what he said in the very opening phrase of verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the Gospel. What I preached, what you've received, wherein ye stand. We'll see those phrases in a moment. But here, he's just defined the Gospel. Now I have to relate a story from my childhood. My dad, I remember very particularly, quoted these verses or this verse to me once. can actually tell you where we were. We were on Academy Street coming home from Salem Baptist Church toward Ardmore. Climbing up, it's a pretty good hill there. And I had evidently been listening in church that day. I mean, I was a little guy. And I asked, Dad, what's the gospel? That's a word I hadn't gotten yet. I had learned despicable. That's from Daffy Duck. My mother was amazed one day when I used the word. She said, where did you learn that word? I said, well, that's, yeah, you get education with Looney Tunes. Well, here's a word that I didn't really understand. I didn't know what it meant yet. I said, Dad, what's the gospel? I remember those rides home because sometimes I would ask my parents a question when I'd been listening in church. 
Sometimes my parents would make a statement during those rides home when I hadn't been listening in church. And those were two very different rides occasionally. But when I asked that question, Dad, what's the gospel? Well, he quoted this verse. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. There's a nice, pocket-sized, simple definition of the Gospel. As I said, we, Lord willing, are going to look at Romans, which is an entire epistle written in detail to explain and expound the truths of the Gospel. But look at this little statement. When you look at it, there are three facts that are given. Christ died, He was buried, and He rose again. But there are really two propositions, and they're both by the phrase, according to the Scriptures. Christ died, according to the Scriptures. He was buried and rose again, according to the Scriptures. That, that third one that's put in the middle is really just a confirmation of the death. Uh, it, it's a clarity that this wasn't a swoon or anything like that. Jesus died and was buried. But in the middle of those propositions, There's a phrase, Christ died for our sins. Here I say we come to the substance of the Gospel. Our sins. People today are clamoring on social media and traditional media. It doesn't take much to set people off nowadays, to be sure. There's all kind of problems in the world that need fixing. All kind of disagreement about what the real problems in the world are. You you could say some people say the real problem in the world is all those sinners and all the bad stuff they're doing. Well, yeah. Those people say, no, the real problem in the world is those Christians who think there's such a thing as sin and they want to keep telling us about it. And there's 110 or 1,010 other things in the middle of all of that. But when we see this phrase in the center of this statement of the substance of the Gospel, our sins... Implications of that are enormous. It implies law. It implies a lawgiver. It implies the fact that we have been created, placed under this law by our Creator. And it implies, given the very definition of the word sin itself, that we're transgressors. We're sinners. And so it implies a penalty implies death. You know, a few weeks ago I traveled to a faculty summit meeting of professors from different Bible colleges and seminaries and reading different papers, enjoyed the time, the fellowship very much. One of the men that read a paper was actually replying to a textbook that a couple of the other men had produced. And he was a friend of these men, very friendly with those men, uh, but had kind of prepared a critique of their book because it was a book that was based, it was giving an overview of the Scripture. 
And it took the theme of redemption. And this fellow was kind of challenging that. And I was at least understanding correctly the, the points of emphasis he made as he concluded was that condemnation, sin and judgment, and hence evangelism, is an equal theme of the Scriptures and we need to be preaching that too. And there was some discussion going hither and yon and I just paused. I was trying to be a good boy. I was a Presbyterian in the middle of a boatload of Baptists. But I, I just had to raise my hand at that point and ask and I, I just asked it calmly. But I said, could you, what you've put before us here, could you define redemption for me without reference to judgment. Now, my point is, what he was jealous to be included is already included. Redemption implies a previous condemnation. The good news of the Gospel is a word that's brought to sinners. It's brought to those who are under wrath. And even in the context, and this much came up in the paper, of the Passover and the Exodus from Egypt. Well, what was true of Israel? They were, if you understand and read the context, you read even New Testament commentary on that generation, they were a generation of unbelievers. They were a generation of those that were just as sinful in pursuing some of the same things that the Egyptians were pursuing. And the angel of death that was going to pass through the land of Egypt that night was going to pass through their streets and homes as well. What was provided for them in one of the greatest types and pictures in all the Bible was a Passover lamb. It was a substitute that would die in that home instead of the firstborn that night. And the blood of that lamb was to be sprinkled upon the doorposts and the lintel so that as the angel of death, the executing angel came, he would pass over that house. Christ died for our sins. The implication, the foundational truth of the Gospel, the good news, is that redemption is provided for sinners. For those who are condemned already. There, I say, is the little phrase couched between the two propositions for our sins. The first proposition then, as we continue with the substance of the Gospel, is Christ died for our sins. It's not simply the historic fact that Jesus died same way it's not just the simple historic fact that Jesus rose from the dead. It's a fact that He did it for us. 
The fact is He will unfold in this chapter, He'll unfold even more fully in the book of Romans, that we were united to Him in that death. We were united to Him in that resurrection. And the fact that He died for our sins implies substitution. It implies atonement. This, of course, is the substance of the good news. This is the substance of the Gospel. And I hasten. The last of these propositions is that He was raised again. That He died for our sins implies substitution. It implies atonement. That He's raised again implies satisfaction. It implies propitiation. It implies the removal of wrath. It implies that we are alive now in Him. We emphasize it not merely on Easter. Again, every Lord's Day is a celebration of Easter. This is the day of resurrection. God raised Him from the dead. Christ was delivered for our offenses and raised again, we will study in Romans, for our justification. It's the divine seal of approval on the success of Jesus' work. I wanted to sing that hymn today. We sing so often and you sang so well. From whence this fear and unbelief. And what does the hymn writer do? He just preaches the Gospel to Himself again. This is the substance of the Gospel. If we see in the preaching of the Gospel Paul's methodology, we see in the substance of the Gospel Paul's doctrine, we'll come with me finally and quickly this morning to consider the reception of the Gospel. And here we come to the realm of experience. Back up with me to verse 1 if you will. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the Gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. Those three statements there, which ye have received. Now, think about that almost in its local and practical context. And think about it in its spiritual and eternal context. This is written in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read the book of Acts. Look somewhat at secular history. And understand what Corinth was. You want to find every flavor of sin the depths, the depravity, the perversions, all of that was in Corinth. Corinth was of such a nature that it was a first century insult to call a guy a Corinthian. These people had received the Gospel. We don't have to look at it from the context of being in the worst of all possible places as it were the worst of all possible times and the worst of all possible situations and surrounded by such ungodliness. 
For we know the condition of all of our hearts. Born into the godliest of homes. Raised in the most faithful of churches. What is true of us? We're dead in trespasses and sins. And it takes a miracle of grace for us as it took a miracle of grace for the worst Corinthian. But here's the good news that you've received. Recipient. Hmm. It kind of speaks of grace, does it not? We're recipients of the Gospel. Of the good news. And Paul says, and wherein ye stand. That being recipient speaks of the gracious provision of the Gospel in our souls. This Gospel wherein we stand. It speaks of our current position. Paul says it to the Ephesians in this way, as you well know, that we are seated together in the heavenlies with Christ. Our position is in Him. When God looks at us, He doesn't see us. He sees Jesus. In the same way, as upon the cross, when He looked at Jesus, He didn't see Jesus. He saw us. The standing we have in Christ and here as we come to Romans is the whole doctrine of justification. It's what many and so many of the decades of the 20th century in our nation were deficient in their understanding. And what a what a predicament that brought to the church and the impact that's still with us. The assurance that comes from understanding justification. Our position in Christ. And how that assurance itself can become a ground and even an impetus to us in our sanctification. Trust the Lord will give us grace in that transition from Romans 5 to Romans 6. What an important gospel understanding. That it is this gospel wherein we stand. And he says, thirdly, by which also you're saved. This is one of those times in the New Testament where we have to look at the word saved or even salvation, and see it's being used not in the sense that we often use it. I've said before, you can ask me the question, are you saved? And there's a sense in which I can answer that definitively and confidently with the word yes. And in another context, with other things in view, are you saved? And I can say not yet. I'm being saved. That's the point here. It's one of those things with a future application. There's, a, there's something that's anticipated. We're being saved. Justified, yes. Justification's never going to get any better than it is now. Never going to get any fuller than it is now. Never going to get more accepted than it is now. But sanctification... 
Well, the Corinthians needed a lot of help with that. Glorification. Paul himself is groaning, waiting for that day. But there's no uncertainty. Something they've received, that implies grace. Something in which they stand, that of course implies our assurance, our confidence, and something that is still happening to us. Of course, that implies our hope our expectation of the last day, of the eternal day. What it means that, well, we've been united to Christ. Arisen, ascended, and glorified Christ. And we're His. Well, as I said, these phrases we've looked at here are in some ways the Gospel in its most efficient and and its briefest statement. Lord willing, we pray the Lord will give us grace to turn to the pages of Romans and see it in its fullest and most explicit form. Let's bow our heads and hearts together. Heavenly Father, we ask that You'll convince us afresh today of the beauties of Christ the power of the Gospel. And what a wonder that we are recipients, not merely of the message, but recipients of the power and impact, the benefits of the Gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. was buried and raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. And so prosper the Word to every heart we ask. In Jesus' worthy name, Amen.